Describe yourself in three words. Um, learning, optimistic, and curious. Hi everyone, welcome to Global Health Lives. I'm Dilan Devinkumar, I'm a Professor of Global Child Health in University College London. And today I'm joined by Dr. Bob Kleber, who's a consultant pediatrician and Director of Strategy, Research and Innovation at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust in London. As well as being a full-time Executive Director and Clinical Pediatrician, he specialises in education and leadership. Hi Bob, thank you for joining me today. Hi, lovely to be with you. Um, so I first came across your work at the annual paediatric conference in the UK uh, this year, where you talked about kindness in healthcare. And I'd like to start with that. Most people have an idea of what kindness is, but can you tell me what kindness is and why you think it's important in healthcare? Yeah, well, it's lovely to be here talking about it. And I think brilliantly start with kindness. It feels like part of the answer to the question is um, that it's it's a starting point. It's a base, actually, as I'm discovering, for basically everything one needs to do in health and care. And I think that applies in a, in a global setting. It, it's a choice of action. It's very much in the active piece. So I think sometimes it can get characterized as a sort of ethereal, sort of soft and fluffy thing mm. that's out and about. But actually, it, it's absolutely a choice of action or behavior. And if you follow that logic through, um, you can start to realize whoever you are about the influence you have on, a, on an environment, on a culture, on a team, on an organization. And I think that's what really got me very focused on it. Yeah, thank you. And you, last time we spoke, you told me how you could pinpoint the day that you kind yeah. of realized importance. Can you tell me about that? But I, I think I've long been interested in kindness. The environment at home had sort of focused on that. My learning and education had definitely had a, a stream on it. But I, I think I'd, I'd always characterized it with this sort of slightly apologetic framing that said, look, I know this is soft and fluffy, but it's important. And then I was sat in a conference up in Glasgow in March uh, 2019, so some four and a half years ago, and listening to the amazing Don Berwick, Maureen Vigziano, talking about all sorts of things. They have one single slide on kindness. Uh, they were talking about the work of an amazing guy called Len Berry, who really evidenced that kinder care leads to better outcomes in patients with cancer. And I just sat there thinking, I've got this wrong. And I can remember who I was sat next to, and I was saying to them, look, uh, the framing of this is just what a mistake. It's, this is the business end. This is the starting point of healthcare. You can't have a conversation about money or about safer care or about being more inclusive or about health mm. equity unless you get this right. So it was a real pivot moment. And I think, you know, if you think back, everyone listening will think back to things that one sort of slowly worked out maybe over months or years. And in some ways that was it, but I can absolutely, you know, pinpoint that moment, single slide, yeah. single part of a talk. And what, what's been great is I've really used that pivot to try and act and behave in a different way. And, and the, the amazingly rewarding thing is found so many other people have just come along and said, well, count me in. What are we going to do about this? And uh, that's been really exciting. Fantastic. And could you give an example of just something in your day-to-day -day practice? How does this work in, in being actively kind? I can't find anything more practical and useful 
as a tool than the deliberate act of being kind as a way to create psychological safety in the team in which one's working. And we know from people like Amy Edmondson and the amazing project Aristotle, which uh, Google spent a lot of money on, trying to answer the question, what makes a high-performing team? Okay, so that question, the answer to it, top of the list, is psychological safety. How do people in a team feel comfortable, safe, okay to flag something, to point something out, to maybe say something that they're wrong about? So let's characterize it like this. I walk onto the pediatric ward, and there's a bunch of wonderful people around, some really senior and experienced, some people really junior. The student nurse is there on her very first day. Okay, and maybe she's got a very different ethnic background to me. She's much younger than me, a woman. And does she feel safe? Does she feel totally comfortable to point out to this increasingly grey-haired, white, middle-aged man who's uh, who's an executive director and a consultant to say, look, I might have got this wrong, but I think the patient in cubicle A, we might have already given the medicine to. And it's that psychological safety that's totally critical, in this case, to patient safety. And you've got to ask yourself, how do I maximize the chances that that day one student nurse feels genuinely comfortable to be able to do that? And then you start thinking, what are the things that I can do to make that? How I interact with people, how I uh, behave in an equal way, how I check in with them about how their weekend is, how I hold the door open for them, how I smile for them, how if I'm popping to get myself a glass of water because my throat's a bit dry, probably someone else in the room is. Who else can I go and get a glass of water for? And so on. these are simple, tiny human. It's just about being yeah. a human being yeah. and deeply believing that none of us are more important than anyone else. Yeah. This is important everywhere, but I think particularly in medicine, there's, there's a very sort of hierarchical st- structure in medicine where flattening that structure is difficult, I imagine. Yeah, and it's a really, I, I mean, I talk to lots of people about this and there, there's some, it's a hugely interesting subject about hierarchy. And, you know, people have, some people have been incredibly supportive of uh, an approach that somebody like me takes around really trying to flatten hierarchy. And others have found that really difficult and problematic. And it plays in, you know, to worries around, you know, well, it's all very well, you know, you're, you're a, uh, you know, white six foot three, gray haired aging man who's really experienced. Yeah, easy for you to sort sure. of say flatten hierarchies. But so I think it, it, it's a really super interesting, nuanced, um, space to, for us to really think about. But the key is on these things, a bit, you asked me what words, you know, I put the word about learning, I put a word about being curious. And um, I think those words apply beautifully to this subject. That the old style hierarchies where just because somebody is, you know, inverted commas senior, they are better or more important than someone else are total nonsense. And they have got in the way, they've harmed patients, they get in the way of things. And the idea that you need to shout at somebody in order to get them to do something is, again, total nonsense. You look at the military around how they approach. They have, you know, re- the people do not have difficulties in understanding who's in charge, but they have worked incredibly hard to change cultures. and not always got it mm. right, but to try and change cultures to be more inclusive. So we cannot hide behind this idea that, you know, doing stressful surgery uh, means sometimes emergencies happen and we have to shout at people. That's just total garbage, and we mustn't get caught up in that. There is, however, though, I, I really, you know, learned some really interesting things from people who've talked about the way uh, you've talked about first names. So I'm very proactive about only using first names because I think it is a good leveler that whatever culture, whatever background you come from, and learning 
better how to pronounce people's names right and those sorts of things to show a level of gentleness and curiosity and, and, a, and, a, and a compassion for trying to understand things that matter. But other people have said, well, look, no, I find that really difficult. You know, people always think I'm the, um, the student nurse. And so me calling myself, you know, Dr. Smith, Dr. Patel is really important. There's no, you know, definitive rule one way or the other. We have to be curious about it. Healthcare is about people. It's about the interactions we have. It's about behaviours. And I think the more we pay attention to that, think about it, talk about it, listen, 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 feels really key. So it's a great it's a great question you ask. And I think it's an area to explore and to think about and reflect. How do people perceive us? What do people, mm. how do people perceive me? How do I make people feel when they're in a room with me or they're on a call with me? How am I behaving in a way that, is doing everything I possibly can to get the best of the people around me to create the conditions in which they can thrive. That, for me, is leadership. Thank you. It's, it's interesting you talk about first names. I, I always introduce myself as my first name, um, but I can see how for other people that's not easy or that's yeah. you kind of need to show that because people are disrespected in many ways. Yeah, I, it, it's such an interesting one. So I think what's key is that you and I clearly feel comfortable about not using that. And I feel very proactive about not doing it. I'm sort of not interested for the reason that I want to flatten hierarchies. But that doesn't mean for other people that that's not a really useful and important tool. And if it's something that's just felt incredibly hard earned around stuff. So I'm, mm. I'm fascinated by self-esteem on these things as well. So just to sort of pick up a different pattern, when you see unkind behaviours, and I've been doing a lot around being very, very clear about not accepting unkind behaviours and, and stepping in. When you go and do the bit of the second part of that, which is like, what's going on? Uh, that sort of diagnostic, time and time again, it's people's issues with self-esteem, difficult things going on at home, a sense of feeling like that everything that they're doing and achieving are not being recognised enough, mistakes that work, absolute classic stuff. So then it gets interesting about what sorts of support and help. So I think you know, the value of coaching, of mentoring, those sorts of things that allow people to understand their place in the world are really, really key. So when you see somebody lashing out, almost always, from my experience, it's not that they're evil or not that they're, you know, a terrible person. They've got difficult things. And and, and self-esteem, you know, um, Freud and others were sort of onto something, I reckon. Uh, self-esteem is a really, really big and important part of this. Thank you. And my last question. Um, so you talked about kindness not being this kind of soft and fluffy thing. It's a science in itself. Can you just tell me how you measure it and some of the science behind it? Yeah, <laughs> great question. And look, you know, you, you've got a strong academic background and there'll be others on the call who are sort of measurement experts. So I'm going to sort of characterize the answer in a few ways. So there's a there's a really interesting question that um, there's a fabulous paper called Getting the Measure of Kindness that the Carnegie UK Trust published. So if you want to sort of do some reading about it, have a little read. So first thing to say is it's really clear to me that you can measure kindness and you can think about measuring uh, the conditions that uh, lead to kindness. You can absolutely measure some of the activities, uh, if you like, the intent, and you can measure some outcomes. So you can definitely measure things. There's an interesting question of whether one chooses to, um, and you know, is that important or not? And then there's a really important bit when you look at how healthcare systems, certainly true of the UK, but my knowledge of global healthcare systems, they would be similar, is the stuff you measure is the stuff that people put importance to, value to, resource up against. Sure. Yeah. 
And so I think there's a power thing here that's going on. So just to name something a bit interesting and controversial for you is people hold on to this narrative that says, oh, yeah, you can't measure culture or you can't measure trust or you can't measure kindness. And they say, oh, no, yeah, Bob, they're really important, but you can't measure them. It's total nonsense. And people are saying that in order to hold on to the fact that the power sits with the fact you can measure money or you can measure widgets or you can measure inputs and activities. And we don't do nearly enough of measuring what matters to patients, what matters to communities, what matters to our staff. And I'm really interested in how, and I guess I'm a mixed methods researcher by background, I'm interested in how from a sort of leadership, if you like, a positioning of power, we wrestle a bit of that back. So I'm on this sort of bullish piece at the minute. If anyone said, I hear, oh yeah, you can't measure culture, can't measure, no, 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 you absolutely can. And here's how you can. And I'm also interested about how technology and innovation, if you think about all the extraordinary stuff going on around large language models and the like at the minute, and AI is our ability to um, aggregate and consume large amounts of qualitative data that historically we were all there with pieces of paper and scissors and moving stuff around to be able to do that with some real speed. So I think our ability to measure some of these really key qualitative concepts is going to get better and better and better. And we need to get really on the front foot. So my take is we should be measuring it. We should be really thoughtful about it. And we, we need to be a bit bullish as well to, to, to wrestle back some of the power about what people value. Because until we do that, the risk is this will always be a sideshow. Thank you very much. And, and maybe we can go back a step now into your own childhood and talk about some of the, the roots of the, the kindness work that you've been doing. Um, so you grew up in rural Essex, uh, which is near London. Your parents were doctors and sport was a big part of your childhood. Um, you told me how you coached and played lots of sports as well. But can you tell me a little bit about what drew you to medicine in the first place? And was it paediatrics that you wanted to work in? I mean, I definitely remember. So I guess the privilege of growing up in a family where medicine was happening and being talked about is I sort of saw it warts and all. So I think, you know, sometimes that gets um, sort of played out as being, oh, you know, your parents are doctors, so they sort of push you into being doctors. That's absolutely not not the case. And in lots of ways, but I think being quite a feisty, um, you know, growing up young lad, I was like, well, I'm going to go and do something different. And so it was both, but I was really drawn back to and seeing um my mum and dad and their experiences and you know the heartache but also plenty of the joys and the job satisfaction in and around it so the huge privilege and you know th there's a problem with this when we look uh, across the globe you know we have to have doctors who are representative of the communities that we're here to serve and um, and so you know having a system where you know the only people who continue to go into do medicine are sons and daughters of doctors is a problem but i guess at an individual level it gave me a, a real privilege to really go into it knowing what it was about so it, you know i was never going to be one of these people who sort of found something different when i got into medicine or was going to give up or find it wasn't for me definitely sort of mid-teens i sort of finally made my decision around it um, and really in a way i haven't had a single moment of regret about that and um, pediatrics came to me really in the middle of medical school. So as, as you clocked, I'd been doing a lot of coaching and teaching and support. I definitely a teacher. If I hadn't been a doctor, I'd have been a teacher, without a doubt. And I guess, you know, the teaching bit of being a doctor is is a wonderful thing that I think lots of us really, you know, live off and, and buy into. But a, the original days of that was a lot of sports coaching. And 
sort of by definition, that was with kids. And I just found myself really enjoying that, enjoying their curiosity and the speed at which they learn. Um, I'm just enjoying their company and sort of recognizing the sort of simplicity and freshness of approach that kids can bring, the matter of factness, less complexity, in lots of ways, greater clarity around, you know, who they are. And, you know, adults can get themselves embroiled in all sorts of contextual complexity that perhaps kids in a, in a slightly naive way don't. So I loved all of that. So then when I went, I remember going in at the London into my paediatric placement thinking, I, I'm really going to enjoy this. And then I did with Bells On. And then from that moment, it was really obvious. So what's interesting, though, is, um, you know, for the last five years or so, I've been doing this executive role. And by definition, my responsibilities are trust-wide and indeed system-wide. So, you know, children only fit a small part within that. So now part of it is advocating and actually there's good evidence and this is true across the globe that children get forgotten about when we're designing and thinking about healthcare systems. and it's been an absolute joy and that complexity of children about young people about parents and and then having had the experience of being a parent oneself you get some pretty good insights into into the joys and but also how tough that is and so you know the parents of a sick kid there's sort of nothing really that i've come across in my life that is perhaps more frightening. It's, I think it's way more frightening than being sick yourself. And people, the lack of control that that gives you, typically in a sort of, yeah. you know, a time of life where it feels like lots of things, you know, you have control at work and you have control of this, that and the other. So, uh, yeah, so super interesting. Never been a regret in it. I've absolutely loved it and continue to learn. The more of it I do, the more I realise how little I know. Brilliant. And maybe we could talk a little bit about your, your first place that you worked in. So you went to Cambridge Medical School, did a BSc in social and political sciences, and then trained in East London. And this was in the mid 1990s. Um, yeah. Tell me about the population there you were working with and how the kind of the social science training helped you. So a lot of medical schools across the world will have a year where people can go and do, you know, some deeper science. And the Cambridge quirk was you could do anything you wanted. Now, my language skills weren't good enough and I wasn't good enough at music, so they were both going to be out. But I went and did social and political sciences. And I, the person I know now, I know exactly why I did it. At the time, there was obviously just enough in me to sort of head in that way. And it was absolutely fantastic, fantastic understanding about politics and policy and psychology. And I, yeah, I remember some really amazing sort of pages about stigma and starting to understand about culture. And behavioral insights and some super super interesting stuff so i loved cambridge it's a wonderful place but it's sort of uh you know in those days was a somewhat medium-sized town and has its all his its sort of wonderful university quirks um, and that was great for three years but about 40 miles down the road into east london it's just the most wonderful part of the world so i spent seven years living in whitechapel worked at the london and learned to, across parts in the london went out to places of hackney and homerton so east london fantastic i don't diverse you know anyone who knows a little bit about london will know about some of the history of the east end and strong strong history of immigration going back and um, a long long way and uh, significant issues with poverty significant issues with the wider determinants of health and i would found myself living and working within communities who i'd never had any exposure to so um you know big bangladeshi community increasing growing somali community uh the sort of historic uh jewish community who'd sort of grown up in the east end uh, a white working class uh sort of deep east end rooted 
And I just absolutely love that mix of people. I learned so much, not just the sort of interesting medicine that, yeah, you know, things like tuberculosis, you see more in those. So there's a bit of the sort of technical medical school bit of what's a higher prevalent disease, but much more importantly, was understanding what matters to uh, that uh, community. Um, You know, I remember an amazing, um, I was doing uh, early days of doing pediatrics as a junior doctor, and I remember doing all the baby checks on the ward at the London and this whole extended family watching every move I made as I examined this newborn baby among 40 hours examining that morning. So it's called this extraordinarily special, almost sort of ceremony-like moment. And they're watching every little thing I was doing and none of no one spoke any English. So I sort of didn't quite know quite what to say. And I'd learned from uh, someone uh, I've previously been talking to, the phrase Shundor baby. And I I've, may have got the pronunciation all wrong with the, the memory of time, but from my memory, that meant beautiful baby. And I just remember they were watching, it was like near silence for 10 minutes as I was examining it. And it was all fine. And I knew this was all fine. And I said these words, Shundor baby, and they could just see everyone like smiled and laughed and shoulders go, you know, this is this absolute joy. And <laughs> so I just love those interactions. That is what health and care is about. It's about people. Yeah, yeah fantastic. And it's really interesting you talk about social science, political sciences. Lots of the guests I've had on this podcast have done that alongside their healthcare training. And I don't know if it's just a selection of the people I choose, but it, it, it seems really important. I need to find you some like, neuroscientists to interview and things like that. But yeah, but it is interesting, isn't it? And they, they, it does it teaches you, I guess, to be curious, to 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 think and look. What, what can we learn from the wider world? And um, it feels really important to how we think about the future. Fantastic. So you then trained in educational leadership. And that was the sort of next phase, I guess, of what you were doing. What are the main things you learned from this? Uh, well, I'm still learning would be the first thing to say. And I think mm. that's actually a really sort of important and profound piece is the idea of learning stopping. I, I don't think anyone ever says it stops, but we have these phases in medicine, don't we, where you're a sort of trainee and that sort of thing, and then you're not. And it goes back to that thing about continuing to be curious, continuing to learn. It's part of the thing that makes medicine and such a privilege and such a special space to work in but the fact it's moving so fast and there's so much discovery and you know we could take this conversation in a hundred directions and for for time we won't but you know whether it's down the route of genomics or whether it's thinking about prevention or whether it's thinking about uh, the role of tech and devices or whether it's thinking about data and ai or uh, globalization or climate i mean there's just way we could go any direction so i think that's a really key piece i think there's something about really thinking hard about uh, the learner and how do how do you create the right conditions and um, in order for people uh, being able to learn i really deeply believe that if you have people in work who are learning then they're deeply happy and thriving and work hard i think it's arguably one of the most useful productivity type tool and um, a great friend of mine who lives on the east coast of the states uh, kate hilton she's totally totally inspiring person and i I've got to know over the years, and I was chatting to her about a previous career, and she was saying, um, you know, she used to do law. I didn't know this at all until she was about 30, and she said, I gave it up. And um, I said, why did you give it up? And she said, well, there are three things to making life at work happy. So one way is doing work that has meaning and purpose. The second is hanging out with fantastic people. And the third thing is learning. 
And she said, well, my experience with law was I was naught out of three on that. Now, I'm sure some people doing law are having three out of three on that. And she sort of reflected, she said, maybe I was learning a bit. But her point was, she didn't feel purposeful in her work. She didn't really feel she found a group of people who had a shared set of values, and she didn't feel she was learning. So back to the learning piece, that is such a critical part of people thriving at work and doing things. So I think all of us thinking about the teams you work with, the organizations you're part of running, the systems you're part of leading, how do you work in a way where there's a real culture of learning? You tend to then find people are enjoying it more. People get more mission and purpose in their work. Yeah. And I think that's critical. So I think learning is a really key part of it. Brilliant. Thank you. And for my final question, I want to come back to the paediatrics and the NHS and the work you've been doing. So you became a consultant in 2009. And particularly for those who are not based in the UK, can you tell me a bit about the UK health system since then? And have you seen paediatrics and the NHS change over the last 14 years you've been a consultant? What a good question. Well, I think we're grappling with change will probably be the way I would reflect that. And and actually, my knowledge of global healthcare systems, I think that's the same. So there are some great examples where we've been able to adopt innovation and technology and data um, and different ways of working, you know, and involvement more of people and more co-design, more co-production. But also, I look at a sort of somewhat old paternalistic system that's somewhat struggling with that. So there's some really interesting tensions there um, that I sort of wish we we could be braver and more bold about change. I think we're quite change resistant um, in the way that we behave. Look at our education systems around the way we train people in medical school and uh, nursing yeah. school and things. They're pretty slow to move. They're like oil tankers in their thinking. And yet the world around us, you know, if you look at how you, how you bank, and I suspect that's true of many places now across the world around, you know, the fintech industry has has had to respond in a different way or how, you know, how you buy things and, you know, the role of the internet. Like, and we, we've been pretty slow on stuff. And I worry deeply that we've not got into a more preventative prevention focused space. And um, that feels like we're really, really behind the curve on. The academics have been talking about it for a good while. We've known it for, we're called in, in the UK is, you know, you know, the national health service, but we're not a health service. We're a, illness mending place you know beautifully i think it's a lovely phrase that don berwick and others called you know about being a repair shop that's what we are <laughs> we spend i mean you know you can someone will will pull me up on the budget but in very broad terms we spend 99 percent of our focus and our budget actually if we're really honest on repair and it's busy and there's big waiting lists and a and e's are very full so it feels really hard to me but we've got to get into a more preventative space and i guess the final thing to say about children young people is and i'm not really aware of any country across the world that's really really done that, and done this in a sustainable way countries have gone after it for a bit we had a bit in this country about 15 to 20 years ago but really supporting the early years going after uh, you know, the long-term benefit of investing in your early years uh, and everything that is around it is really, really critical. But politically, people seem to find that so hard because the return on investment is too long and children don't vote. Okay, yes, parents do. So that, that if you, you know, you wanted a challenge for ahead is, you know, we still have a whole bunch of unimmunized children uh, globally. So some of that's about choice. Some of that's about 
um, in other countries about being able to sort of access things. Um, we have some significant issues in and around workforce, but I mean, education's got to be the thing to really go after. And uh, we're not doing nearly as well as we could or should. So the early years argument is a super interesting one. And, and actually, you know, it really does play into, into where, you know, politicians and others who are making decisions about resource at that level uh, need to really sort of wake up and, and think very hard about the short term gains that they need to go after versus the long term things that would really make a difference. So can I press you on that? How do you make politicians care about things that won't give them an immediate benefit? And this is 10 years and 20 years with this long term benefit. How do you shift those incentives? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think um, I think my starting point is that everybody cares. And I've also had a few that I don't think we get right as doctors nearly enough. We sometimes deliberately and sometimes and quite often accidentally as doctors sort of give the impression that I'm a doctor, therefore I care more than you. And classically, that would be, I've done a lot of work across doctors and managers in healthcare systems. So I'm absolutely convinced that the managers who I work with here care about improving the health and well-being of the local population as much as I do. They've got a different set of skills and a different set of tools to me. And ultimately, we're all contributing to the same thing. But I, I see too many poor behaviours actually from doctors in and around this. So back to the politicians, the starting point, everyone, oh, the, you know, so cynical. And um, I'm interesting. I spent um, some time yesterday with uh, the leader of one of our local councils. And, you know, it's an interesting old thing, not something I'd be brave enough to go and do. A politician does have to go and put themselves out in their local community and ask people door by door, would you vote for me? Will you vote for what I stand for? Will you vote for what I'm going to do? I'm not sure I'd be courageous enough to go and do that and really put myself out. So that's a really important premise, I think, in terms of answering your question. We we have to have a sense of a bit of a sense of rather than sitting hands on hips, get all politicians and nightmares or, you know, worse words than that. I'm not going to put on your podcast. So that that believing that people have got the same intent about trying to make things better now. They may, their methods of doing it, their ideology of how to get there may be very different to how I think I should go about it or whatever. So, yeah, we can debate in on that space. I think the combination of data and stories is so, so key and so powerful. And if you think to yourself, and I reflect to myself and anyone listening thinks, think about what are the things that have changed you and the way you think about anything. You know, I mean, the famous one when I was really little was when how the television screen started to bring famine in Africa onto our screens. And then I think about things like Live Aid would be another good example that, you know, decades later, I can still very much remember and remember the buzz that sort of hit around that. So I think there's a really important thing as we work with politicians, what are the combinations of stories and data? And then I think the final thing for us all to reflect on as I've got a bit older, I, you know, I was never going to go and be a sort of a media doctor or anything like, not really that interested in that. That said, I'm increasingly convinced that there is a role for us in working in healthcare to better explain to the public and with the public and a listening type mode, you know, what's going on and what the opportunities ahead are. And so I, I do think there is a pu more of a public facing, not just in patient by patient level, but in a sort of community based level. Um, and the media has a really important role to play in that. So actually, I, I think there is a role for us. And I think part of the motivation to come on a podcast and share thoughts and listen and learn is, is part of that. So I think there's an important space for us all to play on that. Brilliant. Thank you. And that's 
part of my reason for doing this podcast to get these ideas and concepts and big issues that I see out to the wider public who who maybe haven't come across them. Um, So thank you very much, Bob. Thank you for doing the podcast today. I, I love the idea of kindness being at the heart of what we should do and that it's not soft and fluffy and that it ends up with better results if you do that. Um, that's a very nice way to end end the year and to end the series. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great fun. And thanks for everything you are doing. Thank you to my guest, Bob Kleber. The episode was produced by me with editing by Sam Gomberg. The theme song is Paper Stars by Liam Aiden. This is a Global Health Lives podcast. Thank you for listening.